Uh, okay, let's get back into the politics. Now, before we go to political commentator, former politician Peter Dunn, uh, let's have a listen to Grant Robertson. So this was him talking last year about no new tax increases uh, during the election campaign. Um, I know that Bevo feels that this has turned out to be a lie. So, you know, from our perspective, this is a, a policy that we think is, you know, gives New Zealanders some certainty. It's not a major structural change no. to our tax system. It's making sure that um, the top... 2% of people pay pitch in a little bit more, and for 98% of New Zealanders, there'll be no change. And I think in this very uncertain time we're living in, that's the right thing. All right, so that was Grant Robertson with Heather DePlessis-Allen last year. Uh, Bevo, I saw you post on our Facebook page saying that, you know, this is a lie, this is an out-and-out lie. Uh, so just quickly on that, do you feel that strongly about it? Yeah. Just turn your mic on. Yeah, I'll help. turn my mic on first. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, yes, I do think it was. Um, you As know, in he knew he was lying then? I believed he well, he knew he was lying then. I mean, yes, he he didn't want to give any qualification that might have spooked the voters. He, he could have easily said, um, look, it's not our plan at this stage or something, but he was there. People, Because the, the thing is, he they've tried to pretend that they never made any other promises. Jacinda Ardern was like, this is not part of our policy. He went on. He wanted our votes. He didn't want to spook anyone with the suggestion of any extension to the tax. And he gave the most definitive answer, and using his, in his words, too definitive. But he meant what he said. And now, all of a sudden, there's an, there's an excuse for it. In my book, it's a lie. Um, and, he sh and look, if you, uh, if you don't want to get caught out with these things, then you need to be a bit more subtle. Otherwise, how can we ever trust any undertaking from Grant Robertson again? So he could say, I can, and in fact, the whole, the whole comment on the rent cap, him not giving an undertaking, uh, it's because, well, he doesn't want to be held to any promise that he might back down on. I think, yeah, I think it was a lie. It was uh, intended to get our vote, and he was deliberately um, definite about a topic that he was quite aware would have backfired if he'd said, oh, well, actually, well, they might, we're not sure about that. Okay, yeah. Uh, that, see, that for me doesn't constitute what a lie is. So if you mean it at the time, hmm. uh, you can say it's a flip-flop. You can say it was bad policy. You can say that it won't work. But but if you mean it at the time, and we're, I know it feels like this was just the other day that he did it, but we're still talking six months ago. Hmm. And the amount that house prices have risen in the last <laughs> six months, I mean, it, it is it is more out of control than it was six months ago. So, so what do we more want? Do we want, as I said to Judith Collins, do we want politicians, do we want governments to resolutely stay absolutely the same in their policy even if those policies don't seem to be working and even if one of the the bigger messes that you had was that you were going to tackle a housing crisis and you're unable to tackle that housing crisis um, because the circumstances have changed but you said something on a radio interview six months ago so therefore you'll you'll never change that position I, I just to me I, I would rather uh, governments be able to adapt as opposed to worried about whether they were called liars for what they said six months ago. Anyway, uh, we are going to be doing some talk back soon. Peter Dunn is standing by. Uh, before we go to Peter Dunn to get his take on things, have a listen to Christopher Luxon. So remember, former boss of Air New Zealand, and he did his maiden speech in Parliament this week. Here he is talking about his Christian faith. Now, Mr Speaker, it seems it has become acceptable to stereotype those who have a Christian faith in public life as being extreme. My faith is personal to me. It is not in itself a political agenda. I believe that no religion should dictate to the state and no politician should use the political platform they have to force their beliefs on others. 
Yeah, I, I find that also slightly odd, uh, but let's go to Peter Dunn because, uh, you know, I grew up going to church. I would call myself a Christian, and I don't know that we're stereotyping people with Christian faith as being extreme, uh, but maybe it's just that most of the time when we hear about Christians, um, it's more of the Destiny Church variety. which <laughs> Possibly. I think, I think that's all part of it. You know, yeah. whenever a, the, the Christianity this sort of thing raises its head in the public discourse, it's usually about that exactly that sort of thing. So I think he, you know, he thought I better define myself. All right, to get his take on uh, the week that was and all the matters that we've been discussing, Peter Dunn, welcome along. Hi, good afternoon. Well, just while we're talking about Christopher Luxon, what did you make of his speech, and did he need to be so definitive around his religious point of view? Look, I think his remarks were reasonably unobjectionable, but I think the significant thing is that he felt the need to make them. And in a way, that's a little bit of signalling to that evangelical Christian base in the National Party that he's one of them, while at the same time saying to everyone else, don't panic, I'm not, I'm not a freak. So it was quite a clever bit of positioning. Um, I think the fact that he said it tells volumes, though. What do you think it means for his leadership aspirations? Because to me, it did seem that for the first time, while there's a lot of talk of him going into politics, then he sort of went quiet, and now he's in a little back office in the Beehive, not making a lot of noise. But has he sort of emerged all of a sudden? I don't know about emerged, but I think he's certainly just testing the water a little bit. He's letting people know that he's there. Uh, Look, he's a successful business person, and one thing he'll know from business, if you're going to make a takeover, you don't make the takeover until you're sure you're going to succeed. So that means, sure, you've got the numbers in the caucus, and sure, you're going to win the election. And I don't think he could be confident of either at this stage. With all your years in politics, are there times where there are people who believe more in the person than, than, than the reality of it? As in that people wanted David Shearer to be this brilliant politician. He seemed like a fantastic guy, and indeed he can go into war zones and do amazing things that most of us could never do. Um, but he was not quite the politician that people hoped he'd be. Could there be the same problem for Luxon? Yeah, and I think Shearer is a good example. Don Brash is another one where people are are promoted because of a a belief in what they might be able to do before they've actually demonstrated any great political capacity to do it. So, you know, if if I was Luxon, I'd be wanting to get some runs on the board first, so to speak, before trying to make a run, because otherwise he could well end up like a Shearer, like a a Brash, uh, like others before him, who'd sort of burn and flashed and gone. Do you think Judith will last the distance to the next election and be leader in the next campaign? I think it depends on what the National Party's prospects look like. If the party's likely to be in a position to form a government after the next election, then you know, assuming that's becoming obvious a uh, sort of year or so out from the election, then the answer is no, she won't be leader. They'll be looking to uh, someone who will be a longer-term prime minister. If, on the other hand, it's all looking pretty much as it is now, then they may as well stick with her until they're in a position to select a winner. Bevo and I were having a bit of a disagreement as to whether what Grant Robertson said uh, with regards to tax and the Bright Line test constituted a lie, and I say that doesn't constitute a lie if he meant what he said six months ago um, and that circumstances have, have become even more extreme with the property market. Uh, how would you categorise uh, the change with the Bright Line test? Well, first of all, I think he deserves a prize for being able to use the word too definitive as an excuse for not telling the truth. And that's, that's the best one I've heard yet. Um, but look, the, the bright line test, the way they've extended it out 10 years, is really a capital gains tax under another name. Uh, because most properties change hand over a seven-year period. Uh, so in fact, this means most properties that are not, resident, not owner-occupied will be subject to the tax. Now, I think Labor's been working on getting itself into this position ever since it rejected 
the Cullen Working Party's report for a full-blown capital gains tax. You know, why else would the Prime Minister have said at the time, I'm not going to proceed with this, but I still believe in it. It doesn't make sense to do otherwise. What, what do you make of the other changes, and in particular the change around being able to deduct the expense of your mortgage as a landlord or a property investor? Well, this issue's been around for a long time, and the, and the, the, the difficulty with it is it, it sounds attractive on the face of it, and it may well work. On the other hand, it could just be the straw that breaks the camel's back and sends a lot of property investors out of business. Now, before there's widespread celebration of that prospect, you need to realise that that doesn't automatically mean that the houses they're giving up will be bought by first home, uh, home buyers. So, you know, I think this is, looks a little punitive, um, but I think the big question about the package is, Will any more houses be built? I heard Judith Collins make the point quite correctly just beforehand about consents for housing not equating to new home builds. Um, you know, we're not actually seeing significant numbers of new home builds despite all the talk about the, the requirement. And uh, you can free up land, you can do all sorts of things which are good and worthy, but until you've got, until you've got homes on them and people able to occupy them, you know, you're not really attacking the I guess, I guess it depends where you live, because certain parts of the country, uh, you just see new townhouses everywhere and new subdivisions everywhere, uh, and, and I guess it's not enough. Uh, let's have a quick word about Mallard. Uh, there's been a suggestion that National actually like to have Mallard there because he's the enemy that they need. What do you think? I think I think there's some truth in that. I mean, they're clearly not going to get rid of him um, the way they're going because it requires a majority vote in Parliament. And the Labour Party is not going to sacrifice Mallard. Mallard has been an extraordinarily biased speaker in the government's favour. He's been useful to them because they've been inexperienced. He's a very experienced politician, so he's been able to protect and cover for them. So the reality is that they're not going to give him up easily. So therefore, National's best best hope is to keep pointing him out as the bogeyman. And they'll probably be quite keen to keep on doing that for some time yet. He's almost like, is he, is he sort of like an attack weapon for National? Because every time he has to, he throws bridges out or... Nick Smith, or he protects the Prime Minister, it reminds people, oh, that's right, you're a bit dodgy as a speaker. Well, it could be that. Um, but the thing is, he's vastly experienced compared to the rest of the government, and he, he was the logical choice at the time they came to office. I still think he's given himself an out. After the last election, he said, well, he wouldn't be seeing out the full term as speaker. He'd probably stand down sometime during it. Uh, I think that's probably still going to be his way out. It may be just a little while down the track yet. It'd be an interesting farewell party. Would, would, would it be well attended? Well, it was, it, it, a toast it by Chris well Bishop. For, for, all, for all sorts of reasons, yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. But I think you're right. You know, once he goes, and um, they've already identified that Adrian Ruaf, the, the deputy speaker, will succeed him. He's a much more mild-mannered and less experienced politician. Uh, National's going to be deprived of a weapon. They, won't, they aren't going to have that sort of ability yeah. to... I fell on the house uh, all the time. Just a quick one. Is there any any validity to the notion, like Bolger did with Peter Tapsell, appointing someone from the other side as the Speaker? Well, the only, the only reason why you don't do it is because, um, yeah, well, it used to be because they'd give up their vote. These days, with, with, with party votes, mm. there'd be no reason why you couldn't do it, but the Speaker would almost have to vote with the party they were from. So if you voted, if you had an opposition member as Speaker, they, their vote would still be counted with the opposition. Previously, this passed the post, when you became Speaker, you didn't vote. So if you pinch one from the opposition, that would neuter them by one. Um, but normally you, the government had a majority and could afford to have one of their own in that role. Yeah. All right. Hey, always appreciate you being on the program. Uh, Peter Dunn, political commentator, former politician.